Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. Times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is September the 7th, 2018, and this is episode 2287 of the Survival Podcast. It's the expert counsel show for the week. And we have a really great lineup today, including a, a guest uh, council member uh, that I thought was perfect for uh, a specific question. And we may actually bring him into the mix and rely on him for some questions like this in the future. I think it's good to put as much diversity on the council as possible. And we do have some pikers and you know how I feel about piking. You can only pike for so long before, if you don't walk at the bell, the bell tolls for you. Um, and so here's what we got going on today. We have Understanding the Military's New Blended Retirement System from John Pugliano. We have What is Uvitis and How Does It Affect Dogs from our newest council member, Dr. Kelly Dees Atkinson. Uh, we have What to Look for When Buying an Off-Grid Home, and that is our guest uh, council member, Sean Mills. Sean lives off-grid uh, and has for a long time and has built a lot of different off-grid systems from scratch. And I thought he'd be really uh, a great person to answer this. I think Gary Collins or Stephen Harris could have done well with it too. But I do want to bring in new perspectives at times. And uh, Sean's is an excellent one. He's taught classes at my workshops. When you hear his answer, you'll see why I went to him for this question. Uh, we have productive planning in a marshy, wet area from Nick Ferguson and a chance to go do some cool stuff in the dirt with Nick uh, this coming next week. Uh, we have dealing with packaging and shipping a food product, which I think is a good business question whether it's a food product or not, uh, from Chef Keith Snow, who knows a little bit about that. We have uh, a question on Oxygen Builder, which is a software plug-in product for building websites with WordPress. Is it a good idea? This is from Nicole Sauce, and you will find it to be the shortest and most accurate and easiest to understand expert counsel uh, response to a question ever. And then you have, well, what do you do when a Leo stops you and wants to search your vehicle from former law enforcement officer Dan Omen? And I'll have a few thoughts on that one, too. And then I have a question on panfish and parasites. Catch some fish, cut them open, and there's little worms crawling around it in them. What does that mean? What can you do about it? Are they dangerous? Is it safe? You know, what's the deal with those guys? So we'll we'll talk about all of that and more in just a moment. Before we do, I'd like to take a look at a year in history with you. I think historical perspective is a good thing, and understanding where we came from helps us understand where we're going. And remember, uh, we don't study history to learn from the mistakes of the past. We study history because some dumbass will make the mistakes of the past, and the more we study history, the better we know how to cope with and deal with it when it happens. This isn't really about that, though. This is about Roman military organization, what that was like in the year 153 A.D., the Roman military was highly organized, especially in comparison to the barbarians surrounding the empire. The smallest unit was the contiguum, which translates into shared tent. It was made up of eight men who shared a tent. There were also two servants or slaves assigned to the contiguum to take care of the unit's pack, mule, cook, repair equipment, etc., but they aren't counted since they were non-combatants. This unit was commanded by a decanus, uh, a junior NCO who was elected by the contiguum from within the unit. So they elected their own leader from their tent, 
And I would say that would be probably analogous to something like a corporal in the Army today or maybe a lance corporal in the Marine Corps. The next unit up was a sentry, which included 10 contributors uh, for a total of 80 soldiers and the additional 20 servants. This was a basic tactical unit, and each sentry had their own standard. Uh, they were commanded by a centurion who was comparable to a junior officer in modern rank structure, but was still considered enlisted. They were promoted from the ranks by their commanders or the Senate. The sentry's second in command was the Optio. They were in charge of training. During battle, centurions led from the front rank, while the Optio was in the opposite corner of the back rank to make sure no soldiers ran away. So his job was to kill you if you uh, deserted in battle. Cohorts were made up of six sentries, 480 men, and in battle, generals would normally move cohorts around as a unit, not splitting up sentries. There was no special rank for the commander of a cohort. The most experienced centurion of the six in the cohort would issue orders to the cohort as well as his sentry. Legions had ten cohorts for a total of 5,248 men. The first cohort was different uh, from the other nine cohorts. It was made up of five double-strength sentries, totaling 800 men. Most of these extra men were experts like blacksmiths, carpenters, and engineers. These five sentries were commanded by the five most experienced centurions in the legion, with the most experienced of these handling having the title of Primus Pilus, and that was the highest-ranking enlisted in the legion. Three officers in command of the legion were the camp prefect, the military tribune, and the legate. The camp prefect was a former primus pilus, was in charge of supply and fortification. It was a cushy but important job, perfect for an older soldier with decades of experience. They were appointed by the commander of the legion, but once appointed, they held the position until retirement. The military tribune acted as a staff officer for the legate and was normally a senator's son starting his political career. The legate was appointed by the emperor or the senate and was the highest-ranking officer in the legion. There was also a 128-man cavalry unit that supported the legion. My take by David Verne, who puts these together for us at uh, TSP Wiki. The legions were made up entirely of Roman citizens. Soldiers would sign in on for a 25-year enlistment, and they were all volunteers, uh, with drafting only resorted to in emergencies. The legions were entirely made up of heavy infantry, with small cavalry detachments being the only exception. The Romans were focused on doing what they did well and relied on allies or auxiliaries to fill the gaps. Auxiliaries were made up of non-citizen residents of the empire and provided almost all the empire's cavalry, light infantry, slingers, and archers. They were normally divided based on ethnicity, with each unit using the people's traditional weapons that upon retirement they had and their dependents would be granted citizenship. This form of outsourcing in the military allowed the Romans to fill necessary positions in the military uh, and integrate the various peoples they conquered. I'm going to go back to this whole, you know, the commanders here structure with uh, the, uh, the the legate and uh, the uh, the military tribune, the legate and the camp prefect. And the tribune being like some young guy that was a senator's son or something like that uh, put in there. I, I just, as an old military guy, what I see is like a lieutenant stuck between a very experienced, let's say, captain uh, and a crusty-ass old, uh, you know, first sergeant or master sergeant or something like that. And from that standpoint, guys that were in the military, more things change, 
the more they stay the same. You know, you got to put that guy where you know he feels like he's got something important to do, but he's bookended on both ends, and he really doesn't get that much of an opportunity to screw anything up because he's got more authority than he has experience. And I'll tell you, that's a, a real mistake that I see not just in the military, but a lot of companies make sometimes. Uh, granting someone too much authority doesn't have the experience to go along with it. Sometimes they can even be really good at their job, but they're not good with authority. Uh, I found in, in my career there were people that were granted positions of authority or management, whether it be in the military or civilian world, didn't know really how to lead, uh, lead, lead others. Because they thought, because I have authority, these people will do what I want them to do. And at this time in history, let me tell you, if you were a shitty leader, you might end up with your head on a pike. And metaphorically today, that still happens. People that end up in positions of power inside companies uh, can end up getting, you know, metaphorically fragged by the people that work for them if they don't, uh, if they don't, you know, take care of their people and make their people feel like they care about them. Uh, it happens. There's a whole bunch of ways that people can set traps for you when you are the uh, the person that relies on them. And it's a good lesson to learn, uh, to temper uh, authority with experience and rely on the experience of others. Because uh, the more things change, the more they stay the same. With that, let's go ahead and get into it. Um, the first question actually is a military question. So I, I, if you're an expert council member, you're listening, like, I got Jack a question a couple of weeks ago. I've got a few questions in today that came in this week that are kind of time sensitive. And so I kind of push some stuff around. I also have some people we hadn't heard from in a while that I pushed into the show. So I've got your stuff. You'll be on. But this one was time sensitive. It's a young soldier and an older soldier trying to counsel him on it. And the older soldiers in the old retirement system, the new soldiers in the new retirement system, old soldier doesn't really get it, relying on the experience of someone who does. So John was nice enough to go ahead and kind of make this one a priority for us. And You know, it's not every day that a, a an army private or what have you can ask a person like John Pugliano a question on retirement, uh, but that's one of the advantages of the expert counsel. If you're not in the military, I'm going to tell you right now, this answer will help you understand how to plan for your retirement anyway. And with that, John, go ahead and take it away. Hello, TSP listeners. Our financial question today is about the military's new blended retirement system. Now, as some of you may be aware, the military has been planning a tweak to their retirement system for a long time. It's been controversial because while they're not phasing out the 20-year retirement, what they have done is they've cut the payment benefit by about 20%. Now, this change only takes effect for those that have entered military service after January 1st, 2018. So everybody prior to that is grandfathered in, and actually for those that have served less than 12 years, they have the opportunity to decide whether or not they want to get into this new blended retirement system or not. But the bottom line is, for those new people coming in this year, if they would stay for 20 years or beyond in service, their retirement pay will be cut by the 20%. Now the good news in all this, and I actually do think this is positive good news, Service members now have the opportunity to participate in the Federal Thrift Savings Plan. This is the retirement program that federal workers have had, and for all intents and purposes, it's basically a government 401k plan, because in effect it operates very similar to the corporate 401k plans that we're all familiar with. The reason I think that this is a pretty good idea is that up till now, if you served in the military, it was really an all-or-nothing thing. If you served 20 years or beyond, you got a pension. Otherwise, you didn't. 
under this new plan where military members are able to contribute to the thrift savings plan, and there's also a matching program, which we'll talk about here in a minute, when someone serves in the active duty military and they leave before that 20 years, they'll now be leaving with money in some type of a, a retirement program that they can roll over to a traditional IRA or Roth, just like you can if you're working for the federal government or if you're working for a corporation that offers a 401k plan. So our question today comes from Christopher. And Christopher is a supervisor of a new soldier that's eligible for this plan, and he's counseling him, and he's asked Jack and I to provide them with some advice. Here's some of the background details. Christopher's helping this new soldier set a budget and helping him with the decisions of what he should do with this new blended retirement system, and the individual himself would like to contribute 10% of his paycheck, and Christopher is thinking, well, maybe it's better that he should only put 5% in and put the other 5% into a Roth IRA that, you know, he could be, that could be managed at a place like Schwab or E-Trade or someplace like that. You often hear Jack and I give that recommendation where we tell people that when you're contributing to your 401k plan, you should only contribute up to the amount that your employer is matching because that way you're getting free money and then take that extra money that you're going to put away and put that into your own Roth IRA somewhere. I won't speak for Jack, but the reason I recommend that people do that type of a thing where they only contribute to the amount their employers matching is that many 401k plans, not all of them, but many of them have two fatal flaws. Number one, they have a great deal of fees associated with them. And number two, they offer very limited investment opportunities. So for those lucky employees that work for a corporation that offers a 401k plan with very low fees and provides investment opportunities where they could invest in mutual funds, exchange-traded funds, or even invest in individual stocks through a discount broker, well, if you have that kind of a flexible 401k plan, well, then there's not as much of a need for you to go out and open one at a discount broker somewhere because you're essentially getting a lot of those things in your employer's plan. But the problem is is that most 401k plans are not flexible like that and don't offer all those options, and they are not as cost-effective. Now, when we look at the federal government's thrift savings plan, it only has one of those disadvantages, and that's the limited investment opportunities. As far as the cost structure of the funds that are available within the thrift savings plan, they're comparable to Vanguard or any of the best civilian-managed mutual funds. The administrative costs to run these funds are a little more than three basis points, which is essentially nothing. So from a fee perspective, I really like the thrift savings plan. What I don't like about it is that it does limit your options. You essentially have five funds you can invest in. You can get exposure to bonds, S&P 500, an international fund, and a total market fund. More or less, those are your choices. And while they're not bad choices, there are only five of them. There's no opportunity to invest in individual stocks. There's no opportunity to invest in sector-specific funds. So that's my only complaint with the thrift savings plan. The other aspect of the thrift savings plan that I like is that they not only offer the traditional version of it, but they also offer a Roth component. And we're seeing more and more 401k plans do this as well. So getting back to Christopher's question, should this new service member contribute 5% to the thrift savings plan and then take another 5% and open up his own Roth IRA somewhere? No, I think he should just contribute the full 10% into the thrift savings plan and put as much of that as they'll let him into the Roth component of the thrift savings plan. That's personally what I would do. 
And I do that because, as I mentioned, these funds are very cost-effective to operate. And while he's only going to have five choices, he's also a very young man. He's probably going to be very busy in the military, not have a whole lot of time to study his investments. He's probably going to be getting deployed different places. And, and so in that case, particularly for someone that's 18, 19, 20 years old, Having limited investment choices I don't think are necessarily as bad as they would be for someone that's 30, 40, or 50 years old. It's very simple for him to start this habit of saving, and since they do offer a Roth component to it anyways, he can be putting money in there that will be tax-free for the rest of his life. Now, to give a little more details on this blended retirement program and how it works with the Thrift Savings Plan, as I slightly mentioned earlier, there is a matching contribution from the government to this. And that's what makes the plan so beneficial, and that's also why the service members are losing the 20% off of their long-term retirement should they stay in for 20 years. But here's how the contribution works. If the service member contributes nothing, the government still contributes 1% of their salary into the thrift savings plan. And then for the next 3% that the individual contributes, the government will match it percent for percent. Beyond a 3% contribution from the individual and up to a 5%, that extra 2% will be matched at a 50% rate. So to max out the full benefits of the government's contributions, the individual would have to put in 5%, and then that total savings that they would be receiving would be 10%. They're putting in their initial 5%, the government's giving them a 1% without a match, and then the government's matching their 5% with a 4%, That's where you get the total 10%. That's what I would be doing if I was a service member. I'd put in the full 5% to make sure I came out with the overall 10% match. And then I would also be investing that extra 5% like this young man wants to do, which would bring my overall savings rate up to 15%. As a young person, if you're serving in the military and you can have the kind of discipline to put away that amount of money in the savings for your long-term retirement, then you're not only benefiting from the fact that that money is going to be there for you someday, but I think more importantly than that, you're developing the habits and the abilities that are going to set you up to be successful in the future no matter what you pursue. Because what you're learning is the very important skill of putting off immediate gratification. And that personal inner discipline is what all other success is based on. Now, Christopher also mentions in his question that uh, this young guy that he's counseling also has $70,000 in student loans. I don't have time to go into all that now in this question, but what I would say is that, Christopher, your guy should be checking into the Army Student Loan Repayment Program. I don't know all the details on it. I have heard that people have used it, and although it doesn't work on private loans, it does work on federal-type student loans, and I think it can pay out as much as like $65,000. So have them check into that. Well, Christopher, thank you for your question. For the Expert Council, this is John Pugliano of Investable Wealth. Okay, good stuff from John. Next, I have a question for Dr. Kelly here, and this is on something called uveitis and how it affects dogs and should you have your animals checked for it. Uh, this is where I'm glad I have an expert council member because when this question came in, if I was going to try to answer it my first, myself, first thing I would have had to do is Google Ufianitis and find out what it is. Fortunately, we have an expert in this world now uh, with Dr. Kelly here to answer all your questions about animals and as animal husbandry and uh, care of animals as sick or otherwise. 
Uh, Dr. Kelly, tell us about this uveitis stuff, and uh, should we be concerned, and, and how should we handle it? Hi, Jack and TSP listeners. This is Dr. Kelly, here to answer your furry pet questions. Today's question is from Charles, and he asks, Should I have my golden retriever checked annually for uveitis, an eye disease that leads to blindness? Here's the situation. I have a six-year-old golden retriever with no health problems. Two of the Golden's littermates have been diagnosed with uveitis within the last year, two out of the litter of eight. Given this history, would you recommend an annual eye exam by a specialist? I have heard that if present and left undiagnosed slash untreated, it would lead to the dog having to have its eyes removed, something that is obviously very concerning if true. Is this sort of thing hereditary? Should I be concerned for my dog? Thanks, Charles. Okay, Charles, the short answer to your question is yes. It's probably a good idea to have an ophthalmologist take a look at your golden's eyes at least once a year. But here's the why. Uveitis is a painful inflammation of the eye that can happen to any dog or cat. However, golden retrievers are known to have a specific type of uveitis called golden retriever pigmentary uveitis. And they do suspect that there is a genetic component to this which is why it would make me a little nervous if your dog has two litter mates already showing signs of the disease. Now, unfortunately, the exact details of how it's passed down, whether it's dominant or recessive, or how it's all working is not well understood at this time. However, this condition does have some regional differences in distribution, and it's much more common in the Northeast United States and the Pacific Northwest. And these higher rates of the disease in those locations, I mean, it's presumably related to the breeding stock in those areas but it's spreading. And some of the studies show possible rates of 10% or higher of all Goldens having this condition. And part of the reason that it's spreading like this is that it's hard to stop the spread when most of these guys don't get diagnosed until eight to nine years of age when the dogs have already been used for breeding and those puppies are out there. And really the eight to nine years of age at diagnosis is often a late diagnosis. Once things have really gone south and the dog is having major trouble with vision and secondary glaucoma. Now, glaucoma is the increased pressure in the eye. And it's really that glaucoma portion that often requires the removal of the eyes. The even sadder part of this is that so many golden retrievers are so sweet and so stoic in demeanor that they aren't even showing how painful they really are with this. The glaucoma itself can be extremely painful and these guys have horrible headaches. Um, so it's something you definitely want to catch before it gets to that point. Now, while it's important for you to not only have your dog seen by a specialist, it's also important to become familiar with what quote unquote normal looks like on your dog. And I know in general, most of us aren't staring into our dog's eyes for hours. And if really, if you did, you might be freaking your dog out, but you just want to have a basic idea of the colors and what they generally look like because it's a little different for every dog and knowing your dog personally can help you see when these subtle changes happen. So like I said, when I talk about subtle, some of these early changes are incredibly subtle and they're hard for non-ophthalmology experts to pick up on, but there's a few things that you can be watching for that have the potential to be a sign of pigmentary uveitis. And if you're seeing these, that's a a sign for you to bring it to the attention of your veterinarian or to the veterinary ophthalmologist. Now, the first of these is intermittent red eyes. And when I say red eyes, I'm talking about the sclera, the white part of the eye, it increasing in redness. 
And that's something that can happen in all dogs. It can happen for lots of different reasons and even be secondary to allergies. And certainly not a surefire sign that the dog has uveitis, but if you have a golden with this history, that can be a big red flag. And apparently a lot of these golden retrievers have the tendency to get diagnosed as having intermittent allergies with their eyes uh, because the they, ones that develop the uveitis have that history show up when the ophthalmologist talks to the owners um, at, when they're diagnosed. The other thing is inflamed conjunctiva. So when you pull that lower lid down and you're seeing that pinkish uh, tissue under there, if it's looking really dark pink or red or swollen, any of that can also be a sign of this going on. And there's a kind of a weird thing that can happen too with the iris, that they can get iris cysts. And it's just what it sounds like. They're little round cysts on the iris and they have sort of a lacy see-through appearance. And they can sometimes be hard to see, um, but the bottom line is if the iris looks weird, you'd wanna have it checked out by the vet. Um, these cysts can even, in lots of dogs, they can pop off of the iris and then they kind of float around in the eye. And it actually looks pretty cool. And for your average dog, it's not too big of a deal. But a golden retriever that has these, that's a major risk factor for developing the pigmentary uveitis. And the other thing, once we say pigmentary uveitis, is changes in the pigment. So if there's color changes to the iris, um, so if it's always been a lighter caramel color and suddenly it's getting darker, um, whether just part of it or all over, that can be something that's a big deal in these guys. And really any color change to any part of the eye can be concerning for these goldens. Now, the good news in all of this, if there's really any to be had, is that with early identification of dogs that have golden retriever pigmentary uveitis, they can have their vision saved by starting them on lifelong anti-inflammatory medications. So it is a lifelong thing and they're gonna need rechecks and you know consistent monitoring to help keep them comfortable and maintaining their vision. Um, so basically, long story short, a veterinary ophthalmologist can be an invaluable partner for your dog with a history like this. So, so next up, i got a question for guys thanks, looking Jack, for a new home, and a lot of listeners. homes are fined and are off-grid, and there's various different um, ways advice, that they're obtaining their Jack power. And, to me. and as I said, when Bye. this question came in, I looked at it. I thought about Sean Mills in Tennessee, who's been living off-grid for a long time, and like I said, has built a lot of systems from scratch and, and has a tremendous amount of knowledge, and I thought would come at this a little bit differently uh, than some of our other experts. So I reached out to him and asked him to answer that uh, this question, and uh, here's what he came up with. And I'm uh, I'm quite pleased that we've uh, brought Sean on for today's episode. Hello, TSP community. This is Sean Mills with Hack My Solar, uh, stepping in to answer an expert panel question from Ryan. Ryan says, when looking at purchasing a home off grid. What should I be looking for when it comes to the existing energy systems such as solar, wind, mini hydro, generators, etc.? Details. My family and I are relocating to western Montana next spring or summer. In our search for a new homestead, many of the properties we have come across are off-grid with one or more alternative energy systems. We are not specifically looking for an off-grid home, but if the land and house meet our other criteria being disconnected, will not steer us away from the deal. 
My concern is that I don't have the technical experience to know what to look for in a well-designed system or how to spot potential problems with a half-assed DIY system. Thank you, Ryan. Well, Ryan, uh, most off-grid systems you're going to encounter, regardless of the energy source, are going to have a tracking program built into either the inverter or, more likely, the charge controller. You should ask the seller for all documents related to the sale and installation, the manufacturer's warranty for all components, and all tracking data from the charge controller. Even if they don't regularly pull that information out, many tracking uh, or many charge controllers have months and months worth of tracking in them. Mine actually goes back for a full year. Uh, these documents are going to tell you on a day-to-day basis how much generation you're getting from whatever the power source is, if the installation was professional or DIY, as well as give you the nameplate rating, tilt, and azimuth, head and flow rate, and or turbine height, depending on the system. Now for solar, you want to ensure that the homeowner owns the panels and they're not part of a lease program. If you take on a lease program, you got to make sure that it's transferable and that your loan agent knows what the monthly payment is and how long is left on it, as that's going to become part of your debt-to-income ratio. Uh, some lease arrangements include escalating payments over the time. Uh, you may speak with the leasing company and see if you can change those payments if you take it over. You don't want a surprise at closing. Uh, in any lease scenario, I would propose that the seller pay off the lease as part of the purchase agreement, and same if there's a secured loan with the panels as collateral. Uh, you want that paid off as a condition of the sales contract. The reality is that western Montana is not a great area for solar to begin with, although with some lifestyle design, it can definitely work. I've included in my response to Jack a link to the NREL solar site, which has maps for each state showing the average annual insulation, not insulation, insulation or visible sunlight, as well as U.S. maps for each month showing how the insulation changes over time. Once you have your proposed address and the stats for the system, you can also use the PV Watts website to get more detailed month-by-month information based on the actual tilt, azimuth, and specific location of the array in question. Now for wind, Montana actually happens to be a good state for wind generation, although this is highly dependent on your local topography. Uh, Specific to wind, I would like to see any maintenance records, or at the very least a narrative from the owner on what and how often they perform routine maintenance. Look to see how easy it is to access the working part of the turbine or the nacelle, and look at the braking mechanism to make sure it's in good shape. Uh, You can ask if there is a local mechanic who works on that model of turbine and get his information. I'd give him a call and find out what parts and service cost on that type of system. Now, micro-hydro is a little tougher uh, given the time limit for expert responses uh, because there's lots of variables in the type of turbine, the generator, whether it has a rectifier or not, what the water conveyance looks like, is it year-round or not. But I would ask to be shown the intake. I'd walk the entire penstock down to the powerhouse, have them open up the powerhouse so that you can visually inspect everything and see what the rate of flow looks like. Uh, As far as batteries go, again, too many variables, too little time. Uh, The age of the system is a factor, but storage temp, where the battery cutoff on the uh, inverter is set, 
how often they've been equalized, all those are factors. Uh, personally, I would put zero value in any battery bank and assume going in I'm going to have to replace it in short order. If you get a few years out of it, be pleasantly surprised. Now, that's assuming that they're lead acid. Uh, if it's a different system, while I still wouldn't make any adjustments to the value based on the battery bank, uh, you might get a little bit more than a couple years out of them. For generators... Uh, all you can really do is get the make, model, and fuel type, the number of hours, and any maintenance records they have. I'd go out and pull the oil dipstick and see what the oil looks like. If it's solid black and heavy, uh, they're probably running that generator pretty hard without a lot of maintenance. Um, Stephen Harris did a couple Everything on Generator shows, episodes 1004 and 1005. I've got links uh, in my response to Jack for those. Uh, that's two hours worth of great information on generators that might help you there. Um, I would ask to visit the home while the owner is there, and I'd ask them about you know, the system. Grill them on what they do. Uh, have they maintained it very well? Uh, if they have, they're probably going to be very open and forthcoming with details. I can tell you that if someone came to my house as a potential buyer, I'd talk their ear off about my system. Um, if they don't know the details or they seem to be holding back, that's a sign the system might not be in great repair. Try to get names of any alternative energy companies in the area and talk to them about the system you have and what owners with similar systems might have experienced in the past. Things like high winds or snow buildup on the panels, uh, those are good data points to have. If you are financing the property, you should know that off-grid properties are harder to get financing on. Uh, you can typically only get a conventional loan. Um, you need to find out if the property currently or previously had a mortgage and get the name of the loan officer. Call them up directly because you know they're willing to finance that property. Uh, if you're using a buyer's agent, they can be worth gold in terms of uh, what financing options you might have in that system as well as uh, what other people in the area are doing. Now, another thing to note, Montana does allow net metering, uh, meaning you get credit for the months you produce more than you use to be credited against months where you use more than you produce. And that's going absolutely going to be the case in Montana without some serious lifestyle design uh, because you're not going to get a lot of good sun in the winter. Uh, that being said, any negative credits in Montana at the end of your billing year are lost. You don't get a check if you generated more than you used over the course of your billing year, but you get to choose when your billing year begins. So once you have those data points, utilize that PV Watt site and say, okay, this is going to be the best time to start my year to minimize the amount of potential money I'm giving back if I produce more than I use. Well, with that, Ryan, good luck with your move. Uh, feel free to send me an email at sean, S-H-A-W-N, at hackmyseller.com. Uh, once you get more specifics, I'm more than happy to help you out, regardless of which type of system it is. Uh, if anyone wants to ask a follow-up question on the blog, feel free to do so. I'll be checking it, and I'll answer your questions there as well. Uh, thank you, Jack, for giving me the opportunity to help out Ryan and anyone else who may be in a similar situation. All right, next up, I've got a uh, question for Nick Ferguson on trying to grow something productive in a very marshy, wet area that never dries up. And uh, with that, Nick, take it away. Hey there, TSP listeners. Nick Ferguson here with an answer for Greg on plant suggestions for a marshy area. But first, I wanted to let you all know that starting September 11th, I believe, it could be a day later than that, um, 
I should be down in Industry Texas for at least eight days, as many as 14 days on site, and I'll be doing an Earthworks install for a client, and he's been kind enough to allow me to accept a few students to tag along and learn while I'm putting in some ponds and swales. The cost should be super low, probably only a 100 bucks or so, and honestly, I don't care when you come or leave. Price will be the same. Camping is primitive. There's an outhouse and a very large barn with concrete floors, so you wouldn't need a tent, just bedding, and you'll be responsible for all your own food and drinks. Cold showers, if he has rainwater in the rain catch tank, there's no power out there, but we will probably have a generator or some other means to charge cell phones and stuff like that. Uh, you'll learn how to run a laser level, all the ins and outs of putting in swales and ponds. There might be close to a mile of swales put in if we have time. So it should be a really cool project. So if you're interested... Shoot me an email to nick at homegrownliberty.com and let me know. All right. Now for Greg's question. And he wants to know what kind of food producing plants can I plant in this wet area of my property? He has a photo that shows a portion of the property. Um, he's in the mountains of Virginia, Zone 6. He says, I have not done much with this part of the property due to it being waterlogged almost all year long. There's a stream that runs all year long just off to the right side of the photo that seeps into this area and keeps it wet. The area is not very big, about a quarter of an acre, and it has a small field that I plant on one side, and the other side is forest. I was thinking that I could open it up and plant something that loves water and is edible, but I am not sure what to do at this point. Thank you, Greg. Well, great question, interesting situation, and honestly, lots of permies would say, bro, you should totally do a chinampa. Um, while that may be possible, I am not going to suggest it. I have a pretty cool idea later in my answer, but let me first uh, make a bit of a disclaimer. I haven't seen the location, so I'm just kind of guessing on some of these suggestions. I figure I can at least give you some leads to follow and flesh out to see if any of them actually will work for your location. So don't go all in whole hog with any of these suggestions and spend a lot of money until you've actually vetted it out and seen if it's actually going to work for you. So, you know, try them. Don't spend much money and see what works for you, what's going to um, fit your lifestyle and needs before you, you know, go crazy with it. Uh, there's a whole lot of factors that could bump some of these plants off the list of what's going to work for you. So with that said, to start out just for plain calorie production, I'd look into growing rice. I know Ben Falk grows rice a lot further north than you, so that may be a real good fit. I've never grown rice personally, but I bet if you looked into it, you might find that you have a great solution for calorie production on that part of your land. If that doesn't work, I'm almost positive wild rice will work there. And that is Zizania, Z-I-Z-A-N-I-A. That's the genus. Uh, I think wild rice has, I believe, like two perennial types and two annual types in the U.S. And it grows in shallow water in small lakes as well as in slow-flowing streams and, you know, on the margin of small lakes. So 
It's a really viable crop for that location. I'm guessing uh, it thrives in cool, temperate zones. You can expect like a thousand pounds of harvest, with about forty percent of that being your actual yield of clean rice. So around four hundred pounds of clean wild rice per acre. If you devoted the whole quarter acre, you might be able to harvest about a hundred pounds of clean wild rice a year from your plot, assuming, of course, that your location is appropriate and that uh, the numbers that I found on a couple searches are legitimate numbers and are indicative of what you can expect there. So don't quote me on those numbers, but that's what they seem to be saying. Um, next we have Sagittaria latifolia, and that's duck potatoes. And they grow from southern Canada to Florida. It's a potato-like tuber. Some people really like them. They grow wild, so they should be really low maintenance and easy to grow. Um, the next one is Cium cicerum, and that's skirret. That's a common medieval root vegetable cooked and served similarly to parsnips and carrots. It's also a really hardy plant that will probably grow well and easily there. There's Nasturtium officinal. That's watercress. It has a peppery flavor similar to radishes. It's a spicy addition to salads. likes moving water and clean water, so depending on how stagnant your soil and water is, it might not work, but I'd say it's worth a shot. Try it. Next is... Ipomea aquatica, that's King Kong, or um, what is it, uh, water spinach. It's a noxious weed, according to the Department of Making You Sad, but despite that, it's a very common Asian green. You can find it in Asian markets, so if you have any Asian markets anywhere near you, you can probably find some there and grow it in a jar indoors. You're likely to see one of two types of King Kong. The aquatic form, Pequot, or white stem water spinach, has arrowhead-shaped leaves, and it's the more invasive and problematic of the two types. And the upland type, called Chingquat, or green stem water spinach, has narrower leaves that are kind of longer, and it has a much more upright growth habit. I think Jack might actually have um, the green stem water spinach. I know he's talked about it a couple times. So while I'm not suggesting that uh, you grow it outdoors where it can escape, uh, that sounds like the type of environment where it would thrive. You know, I don't want to suggest anything that the Department of Making You Sad could come and make me sad. So I'm definitely not suggesting that you do anything illegal. So if it were to mystically arrive at le- that location, let's say, you know, a great blue heron brought it in, it would probably grow very well and actually it would be unlikely to become invasive, I think, because it will frost kill. So I imagine you're probably going to get some pretty good frosts And it's a tropical plant that should frost kill completely. So if you were, for instance, growing it in, let's say, an aquaponic system outdoors, completely contained, you'd need to bring some cuttings indoors for the winter before the frost came so that you could take those cuttings back outdoors in the spring after all danger of frost was passed and replant it in your aquaponic system where it's completely contained. Uh, And the next one is Nalumbo nucifera. That's Water lotus. And some of these cultivars will grow like up in Massachusetts and into zone four. So some people love them. I've never had them, but the tubers, when sliced and boiled, make a really cool shape that's like the old fashioned, um, 
rotary telephone shape. And when you cook it in a soup, it makes for a really interesting vegetable addition. Now, up from the water line in your moist soil, you can grow things like scarlet runner bean for a perennial green bean that will likely grow for over a decade without needing to be replanted. It's popular in the UK as green beans, and people have it growing for like 20 years at a stretch without being replanted. So that's kind of cool, a perennial green bean. Uh, also, out of the water and moist soil, you can grow groundnut. That's Apios americana. It tastes something like a potato to a peanut, a little bit mealier than a potato. Uh, there's also another great plant that will really enjoy the shoreline, and you should plant it where it's south and or west facing. So wherever that shoreline is facing the south and the west, you can grow elderberry. That's Sambucus canadensis. That's the wild North American version. And Sambucus nigra is the European version. Now, here's, I think, the best idea. And if you take this advice, send me an email when you get a couple dozen cultivars and we'll work out a trade, all right? Uh, most any mints will enjoy that type of environment. So you could probably put several pots of mint out in the area and treat the whole space essentially like a big wicking bed for pots. If you put the pot in just a little bit of wet soil or just a little bit of standing water, it should wick up into the pot. You could grow dozens of varieties of mint with raised walkways so that you could access them real easy. If it escapes, no big deal. You just need to keep outside runners from crossing over into the pots of your known cultivars. And shoot, you could use the same method to grow dozens of different types of plants in pots and essentially use the wet area like a big, gigantic wicking bed. I hope some of these ideas work for you. I'm Nick Ferguson from HomegrownLiberty.com. I hope you all have a great weekend. And remember, if you're interested in that really, really cheap Earthworks workshop, send me an email to Nick at HomegrownLiberty.com. All right, guys, do good things. Next up, let's take a, a business and food question. Taking a product to market, basically, packaging distribution of a food product from Chef Keith Snow. Chef, take it away. Hey, it's Chef Keith Snow with HarvestEating.com and FoodStorageFeast.com. I wanted to answer, answer Daniel's question about packaging and shipping his brownie mix. Now, that sounds like a pretty neat idea there, Daniel, a grain-free brownie mix. And... um yeah, you're going to go through a whole long list of educational topics as you uh, prepare to bring a product like this to market. And you are correct um, that I do have quite a bit of experience um, doing just this type of thing. Now, I'm going to just answer your question sort of one at a time, and hopefully it will help. Now, you mentioned um, drop shipping of your product. Um, in other words, when customer buys it, how do you get it to their place? Now, in the past... Um, I've used uh, different warehouses to ship products of mine. I mean, I'm talking a long, long time ago, long before TSP existed. Um, and you would go in there and work with the owner of the warehouse, and they would look at your package and measure it and make sure that was in a type of box that would actually survive the shipping. And then back then, what, what you would do is just um, – you know, you would estimate how much product you needed in their warehouse. They'd be charging you a monthly um, storage fee. And then they also charge you a pick-and-pack fee. So when they pull one of your units off the shelf and prepare it for shipment, shipment um, you'd get charged. Now, most of these warehouses are dealing with just pallets, you know, pallet quantities. Uh, it's very rare that they 
do smaller ones, but some of them are set up for UPS shipping where they pull individual shipments. And the fees for this type of stuff vary all over the board. Now, since the, uh, since Amazon has come on so strong, a lot of people don't even realize that you can use Amazon for drop shipping. Now, if you're selling a grain-free brownie mix, you're going to want to be on Amazon um, as an FBA seller, in my opinion. And once you are an FBA seller, I won't go into how you become one. You just go there and figure it out. It's not that difficult. Um, once you do that, you can ship your product to their warehouse. Now, in order to be an FBA seller, they will ha- you'll have to have a listing um, in Amazon as far as I know. I don't think you can just send the product to the warehouse and not have it listed on Amazon for sale. So you'll have to create a listing and optimize it and all that, which is a good thing because you're going to want to be selling your product there, I suspect. If not, you certainly can contact me and we can discuss some other methods. But once your product is in the FBA warehouse, you can create what's called a fulfillment order inside of your your back end of Amazon. And a lot of people don't even know this exists. Um, I use it all the time. If you go to my um, little website, tryharvesteating.com, to get a free sample of the Northern Italian seasoning, when I get those orders, I will log on to Amazon and go to Create Fulfillment Order. And that allows me to put in the address and phone number and email of the person that purchased the product. I can select the number I want to ship, and it tells me exactly what the pick and pack fee will be. I press enter, and uh, usually within 24 hours, Amazon will ship the product to the door of the person who paid for it. This is a fulfillment order, and it's very easy, and they do it better than anyone else. Now, I would I would definitely um, advise to do it this way rather than contacting an independent warehouse to do it that way. So that is number one. Now, the other thing that you uh, mentioned in here is remote packaging. Now, I think what you just mean is contract packaging. Now, there is, this is a whole other ball of wax. Um, again, you know, Daniel, I'm happy to you know, give you a little bit of time just to point you in the right direction on these things. But now you're talking about contract packaging. And there's many contract packagers out there where you can get anything packaged. It's, it's crazy how many of these folks exist. And again, I've been dealing with contract packaging folks, um, since probably 19, 90, I believe, 89, 90, something like that. And uh, there's all types of contract packages. You're probably going to be looking for somebody that does dry blending, and uh, you know you're going to have to design packaging. This is a pretty involved process, but I would not worry about it. You don't have to make it because you can find somebody that can make it for you. However, in the beginning, you may want to use a rentable commercial kitchen to make it yourself until you get going because... It's very difficult, unless you've just got money coming out of your ears, to um, design the packaging, create the product, do all the testing, whatever it takes to get it ready, and then go and hire some um, contract packager because they're not going to make five units for you. They want to, they're going to evaluate this as can I scale it? Is it a product that has the ability to sell? Does this, you know, because they have to put a lot of resources into working with clients and when you come in the door hey i'm daniel i've got a brownie mix and um 
And they're going to say, so where are you selling? Well, I haven't sold any yet. Oh, okay. Well, where do you plan on selling it? Uh, I'm not sure. I'm going to market it on Zello or wherever, wherever it's going to go. They're not going to jump on that. So this is something where it's kind of a little cart before the horse, Daniel. So I would suggest that you start selling it and building an audience on Amazon and through your own websites initially before you even consider uh, remote packaging or contract packaging as it's typically called. And uh, that's about it. But you can certainly email me, Keith at HarvestEating.com. I am very busy, but I certainly would um, try to give you a couple pointers here because it's uh, it's a pretty interesting uh, area. So that's it. I hope you get off the ground with the product. I wish you well, and I hope I answered your questions. And I want to thank everybody in TSP land. And Jack, congratulations on being around for so long. We all love what you do, and uh, we appreciate it. Take care. Next up, I have the uh, the most um, the shortest and most direct uh, answer to an expert pou- counsel question ever by Nicole Awesome Sauce on something called oxygen builder. Nicole, take it away. Howdy, TSP. Nicole Sauce here with a question from Mike in Kentucky. What do you think of the software called Oxygen Builder? Details. I have been interested in WordPress for a while, and I ran across Oxygen Builder on Facebook. I looked at their site, and it looks impressive. What's your opinion? Thanks, Mike from Kentucky. Mike, no, just don't do it. For the expert counsel, this is Nicole Sauce. Make it a great week. Uh, in her email, she used some adult words and said something like, wasted a week of my life on this piece of shit. Uh, so I think she was exasperated and just wanted to save you any grief. So there we go. Uh, and she apologized to me for how short that was. I said, no, you know what? When the answer is that simple, make it that simple. Let's move on with our lives. Uh, but I think we, uh, you owe her, dude, for taking the time to see if this thing was worth a crap and uh, determining that you should never invest one second of your life into it. Uh, next up, I have a question for uh, former law enforcement officer Dan Oman on dealing with uh, requests by law enforcement officers to search your vehicle. Today I have a question from JR regarding how to handle officers who are attempting to do a vehicle search. JR asks, if during a traffic stop, an LEO or law enforcement officer starts fishing for probable cause to search your vehicle, how does one best respond to this? Details. In this example, the officer says, I smell marijuana, and the person doesn't have any and hasn't been smoking, or I smell alcohol. Maybe the question is, what's in the bags in the back seat, or something along those lines. Can you challenge them by asking them, to have their supervisor come out to the scene. Ask them if there's a canine officer on duty to confirm their suspicions because you don't have or use those substances. Not to beat up on JR here at all, but JR is creating a little bit of a problem here that doesn't really exist. I don't know, maybe this did actually happen to you, but this is not typically how officers go about getting or attempting to search vehicles. Officers will typically first discuss the reason for the traffic stop with you, such as speeding or running a stop sign, and then they'll obtain your driver's license, registration, and insurance, depending on which state you're in. And then from there, if the officers want to search your vehicle, they will start asking questions to develop what's called reasonable articulable suspicion, such as where are you coming from, where are you going, or any other questions like that appropriate to your particular circumstances of the situation. 
Most officers who are doing interdiction, they don't want to waste time doing a vehicle search that will be fruitless. They're looking for particular indicators that a vehicle contains illegal substances of some kind. So these red flags are going off. So once the red flags start popping up, yes, the officers are going to try and get permission to search your vehicle. But they're going to ask you, they'll ask you if you have any guns, drugs, or other illegal items in your vehicle. And I suspect at that point you will answer, quote, no. The officer will then likely ask for permission to search your vehicle, saying something to the effect of, well, since you don't have any of those items in your car, would you mind if I please search your vehicle just so I can remove you from any suspicion? And again, here you can say, no, you do not have to give them permission to search your vehicle. And do not ask for a canine to come to the scene to remove the officer's suspicion. It is not your duty to prove your innocence. And unless there's been a different court ruling that's come out since I've been out of law enforcement, generally the officer will need some articulable suspicion to call for a canine, and then the officer can't detain you longer than what it would take a reasonable officer to conduct a traffic stop for the original offense. So example, if you got pulled over for running a stop sign, how long would it take for an officer to to, uh, get your driver's license and registration insurance information, go back to the patrol car, write out a ticket, run your information, and then release you? Generally, that process is going to be under 10 minutes. So if it takes longer than that for a canine to get to your traffic stop location, the, the state is then causing you unnecessary delay. So an officer can't call for a canine and make you wait an additional 20 minutes while the canine is around. If you invite the canine to the scene, however, you potentially open yourself up to unnecessarily furthering the length of your traffic stop. And yes, you can ask an officer for his supervisor, but again, I really just don't think there's a need to escalate things here. If an officer is asking for permission to search your vehicle, you can decline. If the officer is saying things like, what's in the bags in your back seat? Again, you don't have to answer that. Just be polite, be courteous, and decline to share any information about things you don't need to share information about. So in the end, I don't think there is a real issue here. Unless you're raising some red flags for officers, you're probably not going to deal with an officer trying to search your vehicle. I remember when I was taking interdiction training, when I was very early on in my career, I remember the instructor saying, you don't want to waste time searching the wrong vehicle. So if you you try to search every vehicle that you pull over you're not going to find anything and the vehicles that actually have illegal substances in them are passing you, driving past you while you're searching the wrong vehicles. You need to get articulable suspicion. You need to have a reason to ask for permission to search. So not legally, I mean, you can ask for whatever reason, but in order to make the search fruitful, you need to have it based on something. I hope that helps, JR. Um, again, here, I, I just don't think you're going to have a problem. And if I'm wrong, if you did, you know, write in, let me know what happened. But uh, in most cases, if you're dealing with any professional law enforcement, it's not going to quite go down like you depicted. So um, I'm going to tell you it happens. And, and in some areas, it happens a lot more frequently than others that cops are in general looking for an excuse. Um, and a lot of times what they're doing is they're profiling the vehicle or they're profiling the area the vehicle's in or they're profiling the fact that it's an out-of-state vehicle in a certain area going a certain direction. Uh, and sometimes they're profiling who's in the vehicle. If you're uh, traveling through Tennessee on, uh, was it I-40, um, and you're a, a, an older guy and a younger woman in a late model car, you're probably you know, looking at a lot more opportunity to get pulled over than if you're a single dude in a pickup truck. 
Uh, I won't even go into how I know that, but it's true. And those of you from Tennessee know what the hell I'm talking about. And it's all about civil asset forfeiture. And, you know, they pull the cars going over in the direction they don't expect them to be having the, the drugs in the car. They do it in the direction they expect them to be having the money in the car. And I'm sure that, you know, people get pulled over and they just kind of look that thing and they're digging through their shit too because it kind of looks like the profile that they've developed to to look for. So that's one for instance. Uh, JR lives in Texas, uh, specifically West Texas, uh, as I do. And as you travel around the state of Texas, the closer you get to the southern border, the more you kind of incur this kind of scrutiny. I have a good friend, some of you know who he is, drives a really beautiful sports car. Used to spend an awful lot of time along the Mexican border for jobs. And uh, routinely was always pulled over and questioned and, and, and asked about, you know, what's in the vehicle, etc. Because it was a nice-looking sports car driving along the Mexican border. So this stuff does happen. A long time ago, very long time ago, a young man really didn't know how to handle these situations at all, but I had nothing in the vehicle that would have been of any concern, and I was really not very concerned, and I had just actually bought this truck from Pennsylvania. So it had Pennsylvania plates on it. I was driving from New Orleans uh, back to uh, Dallas, Texas. I had made it into Texas, though, so this was a Texas State Trooper. He looked like he had gotten out of the academy next week, okay? He looked like, this kid looked so young, I was I had a hard time believing he was a cop, and I was only in my early 20s, and I was still like, this kid looks like somebody that's still in high school. Um, his uniform was so starched, I think you could have cut yourself on the creases on his sleeves, and he knew he was going to find him a drug runner, because uh, Pennsylvania boys get 1984 pickup trucks with straight sixes in them to run drugs, I guess, to Texas. I, I, I don't know. Uh, but he did ask me where I was coming from, and I told him, I'm coming from New Orleans. Where are you going? I'm going to the Dallas area. Why I live there? What were you doing in New Orleans? I work there. What are you? I'm a contractor. I do contract work for MCI. What kind of work? And I, I looked right at him. I said, honestly, if I explained it to you, you wouldn't understand. But I, do, I work on the equipment that lets you make long-distance phone calls. And he was a very agreeable and very professional. But then he asked me, you know, can I search the vehicle? And I thought about it, and I thought this would be fun. I was in no hurry. So I said, sure. And he went through that vehicle left and right, including looking at the two uh, guns that I had behind the seat that I had told him about, and he thanked me for letting me know, him know they were there and assured me there was nothing wrong with that in the state of Texas. And then he decided to climb under the truck, Well, as I said, I just recently brought the truck down from Pennsylvania. And in Pennsylvania, we have these things I've talked about before that are a toxic nightmare. They're called slush dams. And basically, they are uh, the output of a coal breaker, and it's a coal dirt. And it's these big areas that look like a black sand desert, except it's not like black sand. It's like if mud and tire dirt made a baby and you dried it out. It's the nastiest black you can get on you. And it was all up under the undercarriage because I went and did donuts in the slush dam behind my dad's place before I came home because it was fun. And even after driving all the way down here and rinsing the off outside of the trailer, underneath it was covered in it. So he climbed his ass under there and he checked every place he could. And then he got his baton and he beat the shit out of that spare tire to make sure that we weren't putting dope in the spare tires because I guess he thought I was Pablo Escobar back in the 1970s. And when he came out from under my vehicle... He looked like one of them pictures of coal miners from the 1800s, except he was wearing a Texas State Trooper uniform. That's my most enjoyable vehicle search I've ever had, and um, I don't know that he'll do that again. 
<laughs> sure, he's older and wiser, and God, as long as ago that was, he may be retired as young as he was back then. But it does happen, and that's an example of it happening. And I, I, I am of the opinion at this point in my life that if I'm pulled over by a law enforcement officer, I will give them the paperwork that they require and they're entitled to under the law. And I will answer basic questions for them so that they know I'm not a dick. Where are you coming from? Work? Where are you going home? That's about all you need to know. I'll leave that part out, but that's about it. You know, what are you doing here? I'm, I'm driving. Well, what do you got in your vehicle? I don't talk to strangers about what's in my vehicle, and I know we just met and you're a police officer and all, and I'm happy to give you any paperwork that you're required by law to look at and I'll be nice to you and courteous, but I'm not going to discuss my life with you. I really don't think I'm required to do that. Can I search your vehicle? No. Not why do you want to search it? You know, what's your reasonable suspicion? I'm not going to start playing YouTube troll lawyer with them. Just no. And let them go from there. And unless they can give you cause, no. As long as they're asking if they can, they don't have cause. When they tell you, I'm going to search your vehicle, you can ask them why. And if they insist on doing it, I probably would say, you know, I'm not comfortable with this. Because I'm, I'm you know, especially if there's not a good, what I don't consider a good reason, I would like you to have you get your supervisory officer here before you search my vehicle. I'm just not really sure why you're doing this. So if you're going to make take my time to do this, I'm going to take your, now I'm not going to say that part, but that's what I'm thinking. I'm, and, and I'm, to be in line with what Dan said, I've not had a problem with no. Well, okay. I mean, that's, That's what I've gotten, uh, and I haven't gotten a lot, but I've been pulled over a couple times where I've had officers ask, other than that one, can I take a look in your vehicle? And I, I, I think one time I said, well, you can look from where you are right now, but if you mean can you search my vehicle, I'm sorry, no, I don't let people do that. And he asked me why not, and I said it was my personal property, and I didn't like strangers going through it. And he said, okay. He also then gave me a warning instead of a ticket and went on about his way. You can decline something and be nice about it. And I think that's the big thing. And the reality is beyond basic questions that you would answer anybody uh, to, there is not a lot of benefit from giving information to a law enforcement officer or extending the conversation. Really, there isn't. The best way I've ever gotten out of a ticket in my life is I ran a red light and it was pouring rain. And there wasn't anybody around. I mean, I actually stopped at the red light like it was a stop sign. looked around. It was very late at night. It was almost it was early in the morning. It was like 3 o'clock in the morning. And it's pouring rain. But there's not. it's dark, so you could see there's no headlights anywhere, except for the cop that was sitting just off to the side with his lights out. And uh, so I ran the red light, and he pulled me over. I'm sure he thought he'd be pulling over a drunk. He wasn't. And he walked up to the window, and he... And I put the window down. I already had my license out for him, had my other hand on the uh, steering wheel and had my license up and looked at him and I said, I'm sorry. And he said, you're sorry you got caught, I guess. I said, no, I'm sorry that I did that and made you get out in the rain. And he said, just go home. I said, okay. And I left. It's amazing what happens when you're sincere and you're nice, even in situations that you'd rather not be in. So my segment for the day, guys, is uh, sent to us by Jason in PA. 
And he says it's a question for interim expert council member Jack Spearco on fishing. So I guess I'm part of the expert council, too, and I guess I am because I always do an answer on the Friday shows. Uh, Jason's a good dude, been with us a long time in our community, and I uh, wanted to help him out. And I thought this might help uh, all of y'all out, anybody that's out there fishing or anybody that's involved with aquaponics, and, and here it is. Hi, Jack, I've returned to being a semi-active fisher uh, after relocating to a rental property with a two-acre pond. Most of my prior experiences with small saltwater fish. Recently, I've caught a number of fish, mostly panfish, sunnies and bluegills, which during the cleaning and filleting, I've noticed parasitic worms in part of the fish flesh. Two questions. How to handle the individual fish? Do I toss the entire fish, or do I just cut out and discard those pieces of meat? Two, pond health. Is there something I should consider for pond health, like treating my aquarium for ick, or is it just the status quo? Pond details, approximately two acres, man-made, uh, fine reserve, uh, fire reserve water supply for the farm, Creek feeds in, creek flows out, fair amount of vegetation toward late summer, outflow side, pretty heavy plant density this year. Jason, now when, when I read this, I was almost 100% sure that, that what Jason was dealing with are something they call grubs, even though they're really not a grub. They call them black grubs and they call them yellow grubs. And, uh, and I emailed him and said, hey, can you tell me what these things look like? Do they look like little fat pieces of rice? And, and basically that's what they look like. They're moving around in the fish. Now, you might think, eh, I'm not going to eat this. You, if you've eaten freshwater fish, it's, it's highly likely that you've probably eaten fish that's had these things in them. Um, they are completely harmless to humans, and they are killed. Any temperature you would cook freshwater fish at, they're long gone dead. Uh, you know, they're, they're dead at about 130 degrees. These are things that live in, in birds, snails, and fish. They don't live in human beings. Uh, you could, I wouldn't do it, but you could swallow them raw, and they can't infect you. They're not that type of a, the human is an in, 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 insufficient host for these things. And their life cycle is they're propagated through snails, they go into fish, then they're consumed by blue herons and fisher kings and stuff like that. Those birds then defecate back into the water, the snails then pick up the eggs of the parasites, they go through the snails and into the fish and on and on and on and on. Um, and in some ways they're kind of like aquarium people think of as ick. If you've ever caught a fish and it had something on it that looked like, especially panfish, uh, especially like green sunfish seem to be really uh, susceptible to this, and you see on their fins a lot of times, you'll see these little black dots. It looks like black ick. Um, that's probably an infection by these, these grubs. And again, they're not grubs, but that's what everybody calls them. So that's what I'm calling them. And then they end up hatching out of that they go into the flesh of the fish and they continue to propagate and again the vector between the fish and the bird is the snail and when jason this is why i was pretty sure he said lots of vegetation uh on the especially on the outside late in the year and a creek flowing through it which is beautiful it's a wonderful thing to have but you're gonna have clear water clear water lots of vegetation lots of snails so what can you do here? One, you can do just what Jason said. If you if you happen to catch a fish with these things, they look nasty, but there's nothing wrong with the fish at all. Nothing. Um, 
I wouldn't even say like cutting the parts of the fish out. Basically, you can pick the damn things out, and there's nothing wrong with it. I, I know it looks disgusting, but it's just, again, most of the stuff that we're eating every day, there's some sort of parasite in it, and that's why we're cooking it. If it didn't have parasites or something in it, we, we wouldn't have to cook it, right? So it, it's just really not that concerning. Uh, now... I still would prefer to have less of that in my fish and in my systems. So since you really can't get rid of blue herons and stuff like that, what you can really reduce the population of is the snails. And there's a fish called red-ear sunfish, also known as a shell cracker. And if you put these things in your pond, not only will you have another great fish to harvest, but they will go dynamite on those snails. And if you have less snails in time, you'll have less occurrence of these worms. For those of you that are bringing fish home, this is something you may want to look for. Once they're in a fish, it's almost possible to get rid of them from that particular fish. And most of us end up with snails in our system. Uh, so we really would prefer not to bring these home. So again, looking, if you find a fish that has obvious uh, bumps on it, and you want to make sure you don't bring this stuff into your systems at home, Don't bring those fish home. And again, I think green sunfish are the ones that I see it on the most. Even then, I wouldn't get overly worried about it. And in our aquaponics systems, we can put shell crackers, a.k.a. red-ear sunfish, in there too. They're beautiful fish. And, uh, well, won't they get that? Well, yeah, but once the snails are not really there in abundance anymore, what you're doing is you're breaking the life cycle. And so while it will take a while for it to clear up, you'll see the population and the effectiveness of it going down right away. And eventually it'll be almost non-existent if you have a good population of shell-eating fish in the system because by the time the snails are big enough to kind of start entering the whole life cycle system, they're food. Uh, it doesn't, you'll never get rid of it 100%. It is a natural part of our aquatic ecosystems. And it is, again, probably the case if you've eaten, you know, bass and, and sunfish and stuff like that your whole life, there's probably been times that you've filleted a fish, just not even seen it, especially when the fillets are thicker. Um, if that worm's in the middle of that fillet, you fillet the fish, you throw it on ice, the worm goes to sleep, you throw it in the freezer, and, and freezing your fish is going to kill these things. They, this is not one of those persistent parasites where, like, you have to cook the fish to, like, 100 billion degrees and ruin it to get rid of it. Um, Any cooking temperature and any free, significant freezing temperature, these things go tits up, they're done, and you don't have to really worry about them anymore. So um, it's just a thing that happens in fresh water. And really clear bodies of water with lots of vegetation and lots of snails are going to have a much bigger preponderance of it. So there you go. Hopefully that helps you. And with that, folks, we have wrapped up another episode of the Survival Podcast. Hope you enjoyed today's show. Uh, remember, you can always support us by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z.com, tspaz.com. See all the products that I've ever reviewed and uh, stuff that we've uh, we've used in our own home that we recommend for you there. Uh, today's product of the day is uh, something I brought to you just a couple months ago, but I just ordered a couple more for myself today. And so I thought, yeah, that's a good one to run again since I, I like them so much. It's a shirt. Uh, brand called Salt, uh, I'm sorry, Sand Salt Surf and Sun. And these are a, a microfiber wicking uh, SPF 50 solar rated 
shirt, mainly marketed for people to do water sports and fishing, and they're great for that, and that's part of what I love about them. Um, they're just as comfortable as all get out. They're affordable. Um, and you have two options. You have the, the ones that are the, the branded sand, salt, surf, and sun. Uh, they have all kinds of cool designs on them, sharks, pirate skulls, all kinds of stuff like that. And then you have the generic ones, which are made by Vaporware. And Vaporware makes, like, the, the brand is a brand under Vaporware. They're the exact same shirt. The, the generic ones just don't have nothing printed on them. So if you just want plain shirts, uh, you can get those for about 10 to 12 bucks less per shirt. I think they're around 14 18 bucks to send on size and color and stuff like that. Uh, they're really great. I've got them up on the, on the site. Um, I've found these when I was fishing in Florida last time around and uh, just tired of being in the surf and getting sunburned and rubbing you know, sunscreen all over you and having to do it over and over again. And also any kind of a regular shirt, when you get wet, it just sticks to you like a diaper to a baby's butt. And uh, they happen to be selling these at one of the shops that I buy bait in. I asked the guy, but he said, oh, they're fantastic. So I tried one, and I got home. The first thing I did was look them up and, uh, and buy some more. And uh, they make them in a short-sleeve T-shirt style. Uh, and I really like those for working in the backyard or going. They're a good-looking shirt. I'll go out to eating them or something like that, too. Uh, when I'm actually at at the ocean or on a boat or something like that, where you're out getting beat with the sun, I prefer the long sleeves because they prevent you from getting sunburned. And the other thing they do is, like, when you're wade fishing and it's really hot out, when that shirt gets wet, the way that water wicks off of these things, it just cools you instantly. Uh, so, guys, uh, check them out. They have them in men's and women's cut both. I have links to where you can get all the, the cool, good-looking ones, and they do have some really cool designs. And I have links to where you can get the generics, again, both in um, men's and women's cut. And remember, you can find them at tspaz.com, or you can just go to the survivalpodcast.com, scroll down, you'll see all of the latest stuff, our, our episodes, our YouTube videos. And I've been putting out a lot of YouTube videos today, guys. That last segment... I put that out as a YouTube video this morning. Uh, also, I had a new video up on my White Nile tilapia feed. And so there's a lot of stuff going on at the survivalpodcast.com. Uh, again, you can get there. The short URL is tspc.co, tspc.co. I know a lot of you guys subscribe through Stitcher, iTunes, and stuff like that, iHeartRadio, etc. Um, that's great. I'm glad that you get the show that way. But don't miss out on the website. And, and do consider get, getting by and subscribing to the email uh, email uh, alerts. And you just click on subscribe and fill out that form. I don't share your information. I don't sell people's information. I don't spam people. You can unsubscribe anytime. Um, but I've changed the way I do emails now, and you get one email a day with everything for that day. So you get you know five emails a week to just say here's all the stuff on the on the blog. So if you haven't subscribed to the email list, or if you you didn't like the way I used to do it. I consider coming by and doing it this time. Now we go to our song of the day. Uh, the song of the day today, I, I, I'm calling an audible and I'm preempting uh, Jamie Dupree. And I'm doing that for a couple reasons. One, uh, I actually like didn't want to do this because I wanted to get Jamie Dupree, who's the acoustic artist we've been playing this week, all done in one week without breaking it up. And I realized, well, stupid, uh, Monday was a holiday and... So that's not going to happen anyway. You're going to have to carry over his music to next week. And, of course, if you ain't been living under a rock, you know that uh, really good dude and great actor and uh, at one time probably going to be a pretty good professional football player and do injuries ended up going and acting. Burt Reynolds uh, passed away this week. 
And uh, I always really liked Burt Reynolds' movies. I always thought he was a cool dude, too. And uh, a good sense of humor about himself. It was part of a lot of 80s movies. And the way I described 80s movies is oh, they were so terrible that they were good. And, and again, old Burt's passed away. Um, cardiac arrest, I believe. I think he was in his 80s. And, uh, you know, you, you feel bad when anybody that you, you like uh, pass on. But I, I think you got to put his life in the win column overall. He had a pretty good one. And sooner or later, we all, you know, pass from the service. And, that, and that's why I always say make the most of your dash. Um, Burt Reynolds had a lot of really great movies. The Longest Yard, Cannonball Run, probably the, the part he was born to play and that made his career was Smokey and the Bandit. Uh, but... Actually, the movie that I liked best was probably one that didn't do the best for him, uh, but it was Stroker Ace. Stroker Ace is just a, an awesome, awesome movie. It was basically Rick, the Ballad of you know, Talladega Nights, the Ballad of Ricky Bobby, except it was somewhat serious about it. And on, on, on top of uh, all of it, it, uh, it, it just kind of hit every mark for for a movie from that time and I, it was it was funny as hell uh it was him at his best and uh, i always loved it and if you're you know if you're an older guy like me you're in your 40s 50s you remember those movies from the late 70s and early to mid 80s fondly and you think about once in a while like sitting down with your kids or your grandkids and watching one of those old movies i think stroke race would be one to do it so the song that I'm going to play for you is the theme song from that uh, movie. Of course, it's called Stroker Ace, and uh, Charlie Daniels Band did it. And this is in 1983 that this song and movie came out. Uh, and if you listen to it, it's it's basically Charlie Daniels doing what you can only call a rap. Uh, and rap wasn't a thing yet in 1983. It was sort of kind of a subculture, but it wasn't a thing. And it wasn't him trying to... Uh, to do a rap, it was him doing something that was actually done a lot in country music. But if there is a guy that could pull off doing rap in a country song about a race car driver played by Burt Reynolds, it would be and is Charlie Daniels. It's also a hell of a song to wrap up your week with. So here we go. Stroker Ace was born to race. This has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Race was born to race, he had a mean streak two feet wide. A son of a gun with a taste of fun and more than his share of pride. Take a dirt road curve with a devil's nerve, make a car dance across the mud. And haul and shine was his regular line till the track got in his blood. It was a real hot shot and he bragged a lot, but man, that fool could drive. Cause he loved the feel of the steering wheel and the girls with the bedroom eyes. And in a racing tide or a bar room fight, old Stroker stole the show. A backstretch blazer, a real hell razor, and a racetrack Romeo. Mama, lock your daughters up, that wild bunch is back in town. And them little girls get frisky when they hear that race car sound. They're bringing out the yellow flag, somebody's brakes have failed. There's oil slick on the inside and a wreck along the rail. You better stand on the stroker, cause a bandit's on your tail. 
It's a downright joy for a country boy when he hears them engines moan. But you gotta hang tough and it gets real rough when you're out there on your own. Cause they'll push you around, they'll knock you down, they'll shove you up against the wall. And you always know when the engine blows that a man can't win them all. You could push that car just a little too far any Sunday afternoon. And if you break your neck, some damn fool wreck, they forget about you soon. But old Stoker Ace was born to race and it's worth all the trying. Just to drink champagne in the victory lane and to hear that concrete whine. Stroker, get your dander up, this ain't no time to lag. You got to make a lap up if you're gonna take that checkered flag. Number 10 is closing in to even up the score. It's time to wave bye-bye and put the pedal on the floor. You better stand on the stroker cause you're blowing off their door. Blow the doors off, Stroker. Stand on it, son. Ah, oh, you good looking. 